If you uh, have a Bible with you, I would, I would uh, invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, we're going to be in chapter 3. This is our second to last sermon in this series of First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, again, we will be in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. If you're using a, a pew Bible, if you would like to use a pew Bible... Um, you can find our passage beginning on page 1,260. Again, we will be in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 through 15. And uh, as I was preparing for this sermon tonight, I was thinking over the last few days and, and remembering, I think I've preached this sermon before. And uh, I have not preached a sermon before, but I have preached a relatively similar passage back when we were in 1 Thessalonians that had to do with work. Uh, We're going to see, as Pastor Matt kind of just hinted at in his prayer, and as this passage, and again, this is the same church in in, uh, 2 Thessalonians that Paul wrote to in 1 Thessalonians, and it's probably only weeks or maybe months at most between when he wrote these two letters, but we're going to see that. The issue of work, and particularly the issue of idleness, uh, is still with the Thessalonians. It's still something that Paul needs to deal with as he finishes up this letter. And, uh, but because of the fact that I've talked about work so much, we are going to talk about that tonight. But one of the things I'm going to focus on in our passage tonight is uh, church discipline. Uh, what Paul says the antidote for the problem there in the church in Thessalonica is to do, Uh, what the believers, the church there is to do, and again, that it is God who directs how we are to live our lives and and not us by what we think uh, might be loving or whatever. So that is what we'll be looking at tonight, just as a little sneak preview. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll be reading... Uh, from verse 6 all the way to verse 15. And let's pray before we uh, even read God's word. Our gracious Lord, uh, we know that you instruct us to even be about, that you instructed Timothy even to be about uh, the reading of the scriptures, the public reading of the scriptures. Uh, Lord, that it's a means of grace to hear your word, your revelation to your creation of who you are, of your plan of redemption, of what you have done for us uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and sending him as an offering for sin, Lord, as our our Savior. Father, we know that our hearts are are prone to wander. We know that our minds are prone to wander, and we ask that you'd be with us now, Lord. Would your word do all that you have purposed for it? Lord, would you do this... uh, because you're a merciful, gracious God who promises to, to grow his church, that the Lord Jesus would be with his church, that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, uh, would you help us tonight to, to be transformed, Lord, to continue to be conformed not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, uh, that we may prove your good and acceptable and perfect will, Lord. Uh, We thank you for this time in your will, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Hear now God's word from 2 Thessalonians. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. As far as the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, what he writes truths upon our hearts. Well, uh, when I looked at this section, what I thought of was love. Uh, I thought of love. And I thought of the problem of our society and culture and in our context here tonight, uh, for us to be more speaking to ourselves, uh, even in the church, uh, what exactly is love? Uh, there's a, a pastor in, at Westminster Presbyterian Church in, in Sumter, in our presbytery right now, who's going through a series on, uh, on love, on what love is. And he used the 1984 Foreigner song, I Want to Know What Love Is, as the title of his sermon series. And uh, I cannot rip that off. I'm sure Tom probably likes that, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I don't want to rip that off from him. So I had to come up and think of an even better song, which is What is Love? That came out nine years later by Hadaway. You may know with the refrain, Baby, Don't Hurt Me. But What is Love? The 1993 hit. And I say that somewhat joking, but at the same time, it's a question that I think we need to answer uh, in our culture, but in our church today. What is love? Do we just get to define what love is? Or does God, something outside of us, the scriptures in particular, get to say what love is and we get to conform to what that is? Now, back to Hadaway, our friend from Trinidad with his hit, What is Love?, he had this quote about his song, and he says, People always ask me what I meant with the song, What is Love? I meant that what is love needs to be defined by everyone by his own definition. It's unique and individual. For me, it has to do with trust, honesty, and dedication. He could be uh, in the church today, and people would say, that sounds great. I agree with him 100%. But again, I want to uh, focus on what he says here, that what love is needs to be defined by everyone by their own definition. 
and tell us, bring up to us, that that is our problem today, is that we think everybody has their own definition of certain things, including the love of God. Now, Hadaway himself, some of the things that he has in his definition of, his own definition of what love is, trust and honesty and, and dedication, uh, it's, those are actually pretty good biblical components of what love is. But again, of course, his, his statement that everybody needs to have their own definition is, is the problem. And that is something that uh, we need to deal with again. And tonight, that is what we're going to be talking about, whether that is talking about love or the church or anything else. Now, we know that in the world, we must, of course, talk about that. Uh, love today basically means whatever uh, you want it to be, but more and more, love means tolerating any sort of behavior whatsoever, no matter how vile it may have been considered throughout history. Uh, now, love is to live and let live, uh, not judge, tell people uh, you do you, and so forth, and that is what love is, tolerating all behavior. And more and more, love is cheering on and celebrating uh, all behavior in the name of tolerance, uh, unless, of course, that behavior is, is not tolerating other behaviors. Uh, then you will not be tolerated. But besides that, if you are willing to say that nothing that anybody else does or anybody does is potentially wrong, that there's a standard for everybody at all times, uh, then you will be seen as loving and tolerant. That is what we see in the world. In fact, my wife and I get to experience this, and James, uh, when we go to Charlotte and visit our friends who live uh, up there, and we turn into a nice uh, suburb, well, it's actually in Charlotte, but a nice uh, neighborhood in Charlotte and down a cul-de-sac with my very, very conservative Presbyterian friends to go to their home and have a good time uh, swimming and hanging out. But right when we turn uh, on their street, we will see a sign that uh, greets us in somebody's front yard, which I have not seen here in Dillon, but I'm sure in Florence or some other places, maybe in Dillon, I hope not, but you might find, which will say, have such maxims on it, such wise sayings as things like, water is life, and we believe that science is real. And of course, one of the big things that is believed on there is, we believe that love is love. Uh, no experience explanation needed, apparently, of what that means. I assume that people would disagree with some things that you could say are love, but again, I think maybe some people have seen these signs before, but people have them in their front yards, again, to show how tolerant and loving they are. And right next door, again, to my friend who uh, is a lawyer, but who goes to Uptown Charlotte to do open-air preaching every Friday as an ardent, uh, strict Presbyterian uh, you have this contrast of the people who live next to him saying that love is basically whatever you want it to be. Well, it's not to be that way in the church, and that's all a sham, and I think we all know that. Love is not anything that you want it to be. Uh, in the church, it's not live and let live. Uh, in fact, in the church, we are our brother's keeper, and in fact, we must sometimes do the dirty and difficult work of getting into each other's lives and doing that, which sometimes people don't think is loving, but is loving, 
and in fact, the opposite of which is cowardly, which is overlooking certain forms of behavior uh, that are destructive to people. And again, that's tonight what we're going to be looking at with this issue of idleness that was going on in Thessalonica. Uh, God does not tell us just to notice sin and, and just realize that we're sinners. Uh, of course we do. If you're a Christian, one of the things that God has done in your heart and legitimately, genuinely done is opened your eyes, your understanding, to understand that you are a sinner, a genuine sinner. And therefore, if you see somebody else committing sin, you should never be looking at that person thinking, I could, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know how they're doing that. Uh, but rather, God has opened your eyes to realize, by the grace of God, but for the grace of God, there go I. But that does not mean, because of the fact we realize that we could be doing the same thing, that we don't say anything about it. Now, of course, there's a wrong way of going and confronting people and loving our brothers and sisters. There's a, a censorious, legalistic, self-righteous way of doing these things. But the answer to that is not the cowardly way of the world to say nothing and, and then call it love. When it's not, it's cowardice. It's actually a form of hatred where you don't care about someone enough to even to let them know that you're concerned about them and that you are worried about the path that they are taking. So again, may it never be that in the church we follow the world with making our own definitions of what love is or what anything is, really. Now, as Presbyterians, we're in a, the Reformed tradition here, the Protestant tradition, and more specifically, the Reformed tradition of Christianity that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And you may know, but the, the Reformers agreed that there were three things as they studied the Scriptures. There were three marks, uh, in, three marks that the church, any particular church, must have in order to be considered a legitimate church of Christ. Uh, not just a Bible study, uh, not just a place that, like a soup kitchen that does good or something like that, but an actual church. And the Reformers agreed, and I think they are correct, that the Bible teaches these three things in particular must be found in any church for it to be faithful to doing what God has called it to do. And these three, three marks of the church are the preaching of the Word of God. So preaching of God's Word. If you go somewhere where they don't preach God's Word, it's not a true church. Uh, we're seeing the Scriptures over and over and over again that the mandate to preach the Word in season and out of season is given to the church. We are to be people of the Word of God. And so, therefore, preaching is one of the marks of the church, teaching the Bible. Secondly, you have the proper, correct administration of the sacraments, and this is coming against, in particular in that time, against the Roman Catholics, but, and the Roman Catholic, uh, they would say, and I would agree, uh, incorrect usage of the sacraments as being uh, uh, the Mass and so forth, as being a readministration of Christ's sacrifice and so forth, but the proper administration of the sacraments, those being the Lord's Supper and uh, baptism. So things like the Salvation Army and other places typically that had uh, preached the gospel and done other things, but they did not, uh, did not administer the sacraments, couldn't rightly be considered to be a church because, again, we're told to do these things, to administer the sacraments, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then lastly, 
the last mark of the church, that if, and again, this is the one that is the one that has kind of been pushed to the, the wayside now and seen as unloving and everything else, is church discipline. Uh, church discipline. When we have people, praise God, who become members here, even recently we've had people who've become members here, um, they, one of the vows that they take is to agree to come under the watch care of the church and under the discipline of the elders in the session of that particular church. And just to, to be clear, uh, when you read the Bible and you read the New Testament, uh, and our confession even says this, um, while of course it is possible that there are people who are regenerate, who are saved, who are Christians, who are not mem- a member of the church, um, I would say in the Bible, the apostles could not imagine a person who was a believer who was not a member of a church. Now, again, there might be people who are looking for a church to become a member of. Uh, there might be, not back in that day, but in our day today, there may be people who are looking for a church. Maybe they've moved. Maybe they've been recently converted. Maybe they've just come to realize that church uh, membership is actually biblical. But again, uh, even our confession of faith says that ordinarily there is no salvation outside of the church. Not because the church, by means of offering the sacraments that give you grace and so forth, do so, but because God will bring his people into fellowship together and under the discipline of a session and under uh, into the communion with the rest of the church. So again, church membership is biblical where you are putting yourself under the rule of men whom God has chosen for himself. Now, I think we can all agree to this. We are forbidden in the Bible from the beginning, including to this day, to worship God or to think of him just in any old way we want. That is called idolatry. When we just make up God in our own minds, however we want him to be, that is idolatry. Well, I think God maybe is like this, so that's how I imagine God. That's what my God is like. And I do understand when people sometimes use the term like my Jesus and other things, and at times people just mean they're referring to, of course, their personal relationship with the Lord of the Bible. Uh, But you can run into problems like that when you say things like that. When people will say, when you read the Bible and somebody might say something like, you know, my Jesus would never do that. Uh, Again, we're reading the Bible here, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible is the problem, not the Bible itself. So again, um, it is idolatry to create God in whichever way we want him to be, but it's also idolatry. It is a form of idolatry for us to ignore what the Bible teaches and make up out of how we want God to do things, how God runs his church. And then maybe see something like church discipline and say, well, my Jesus is about love, so he would never do that. He would never discipline somebody in the church or have the church carry forth discipline uh, because my Jesus wouldn't do that. Again, I try to say it uh, not mockingly or anything, but that's because your Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible expressly tells us to do that. So you're rejecting what God says and saying, no, 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 I don't like that. I'm making my own thing here. Again, that's idolatry. That's one of our great sins is pushing away how God reveals himself to us and saying, I don't like that. I prefer my own view of what God is. So, again, the church, 
First Presbyterian Church here in Dillon. Uh, as I just said, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Sumter, South Carolina. Uh, First, Pres- or First Baptist Church here in Dillon. If we're going to be real churches, we must do something that Jesus has told us to do. Preach the word of God and minister the sacraments. And Matthew 18, we must practice church discipline where we look out for our neighbor. We look out for our brothers. And the reason we must do that is for the very fact that it is the loving thing to do. It's what the Lord tells us to do, and it's what the loving thing for us to do as well. So in our passage tonight, we're going to see Paul tell the church to do something that quite often would be looked at as unloving, but again, it's not. It's actually the loving thing for us to do uh, with anybody. So just to give a little bit of context again, um, as we're about to finish up these letters from Paul to the Thessalonians, uh, Paul has one last issue he needs to deal with. Again, that's this idleness issue. And as we've gone through the first letter of Thessalonians, a much longer one, and now 2 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, we must remember, are doing well. Uh, they're a congregation that Paul primarily has good things to say about. They're staying faithful. Uh, they're pressing on in the faith. They're being persecuted by their kinsmen. Uh, they're mostly Gentiles. So they're being mocked and persecuted and so forth, and they're not falling away. They're continuing to press on, and Paul praises God for that, that they're continuing to do that. There are good things going on with the Thessalonians. It's primarily good, actually. So the Thessalonian letters are letters where Paul primarily has good things to say. He he praises God and encourages them to press on. As you remember, Paul also had some big doctrinal issues to deal with with the Thessalonians, of course, in both letters. Again, these letters are very close in time when they're written to the Thessalonians, so he's dealing with some, there's a lot of overlap between the two letters, but you remember, they weren't certain about the resurrection of the dead, and if believers, those who had already died uh, when Christ returns, if, if believers who had already died when Christ returns, somehow were going to miss out on something, or it's actually pretty difficult to know exactly what the, the issue was they were talking about there. But again, their, their eschatology, their understanding of the last things, of the return of Jesus and the resurrection, including possibly even the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the bodily return of Christ, uh, they had a lot of questions about that. And Paul has already dealt with those issues and let them know uh, all believers, in fact, all people, but all believers, whether living or asleep, dead, when Christ returns, will Uh, partake of the resurrection when Christ returns. And now, finally, he comes to an issue uh, that he dealt with briefly in the first letter to the Thessalonians, and now it's something that's still going on, and it's something that he just, I guess, feels that he must deal with, again, because Paul loves the Thessalonians, and like a good father, he's willing to correct them when there is an issue. And this issue, again, is the area of work and idleness, and attached to that, what to do with those who refuse to listen to the counsel of the church? What do you do if somebody is in sin, and that particular person you go and speak with, and again, I realize and I want to be sensitive to the fact that there can be spiritual abuse in churches. There absolutely can be, uh, and that's horrible. But that doesn't mean that all forms of discipline and authority and other things are thrown out the window because some people have abused it. 
Um, but what do you do if there is a genuine issue that has arisen and the proper steps have gone, gone, been gone through? That's probably not the way to say it. You've gone through the proper steps, uh, but the person refuses to listen. What do you do with that particular person? So we're going to look at these things just briefly in three short points tonight. We're going to look at the problem in Thessalonica. There's a problem, and he wants to deal with that before uh, he finishes writing to them. We're going to look at the antidote to that problem after that. So again, there's a problem in Thessalonica, the antidote to that particular problem, and then lastly, we're just going to look at how that applies to us today. So again, the problem, the antidote, and how that applies to us today. So let's uh, first look at the problem. And we see this starting in verse 11, all the way down to verse 11. If you jump down and see right there, Paul, I'm going to jump around this, uh, these two paragraphs a little bit. But if you see in verse 11, uh, the issue, it comes up here where Paul says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So Paul, again, I remember bringing this up before. He's using kind of wordplay of being idle, like a car that's idle, that's not doing anything. He says they're busy about being idle. Their problem is they're doing nothing. Now, this idleness, we don't know exactly why uh, the people are being idle or some people in Thessalonica are being idle. Uh, It's popular today to think that it was due to uh, a cultural uh, factor in Thessalonica and in, in Greek culture where the the, the real big shots, the real important people, uh, didn't need to work. They were independently wealthy, or maybe they were uh, artists of some sort who were supported by other people. And if you were really important and really impressive, you didn't have a 9-to-5 job that you went to, or back then probably a 6-to-10 job that you went to. Uh, but it could have been that, potentially. It was, certainly that was part of the culture. Again, the, the big important people uh, didn't have to work. So it could have been due to pride that people wanted to look uh, important. And if that is the problem, uh, Paul lets them know you still are to go to work. Uh, Secondly, and I would say almost certainly at least part of, if not the whole reason, is laziness. This issue uh, of idleness may come down to nothing more than, than laziness. And again, it could have been because of a, a doctrinal issue, a uh, misunderstanding of the return of Christ, uh, that this perhaps came about. Uh, I think I've used this in a, the last time I talked about this, but it could have been that they misunderstood. And as we read First Thessalonians, it looks like they think Jesus is about to return any second. And I've talked at the Christian school before about this, uh, that if Somehow, now again, this is a big hypothetical because we do not know when Jesus is returning. We know that he's going to. But if we did somehow know infallibly from the Lord that he was turning, returning this Friday or something, I can pretty much guarantee you the first thing that would happen is that school and work and so forth would be canceled this next week because people would be at home waiting for Christ's return. And that's probably, or there's a good chance that that's what was going on, that 
uh, there's no reason for Kay to go out and cut corn anymore because we're not going to be around for the, for the animals to get it and everything else. Jesus is about to return any minute. That very well is potentially what led to this uh, idleness and people stopping to stop working, or at least ended to it, uh, or added to it, I'm sorry. But no matter what it was, by this time, uh, Paul's patience has run out and people are continuing not to work. And this potentially over-spiritualizing, whatever it was, has turned into sin. And Paul wants to uh, address this. He must address this. So again, notice in verse 11 that they're not just idle or not just not working, but they're also stirring up strife. Uh, He says they're not busy at work. They're not busy but they're busy bodies. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. So it's not just, again, that they're not contributing, but they're actually making things worse in the community of the church. You may have, I'm sure everybody's heard here before that idle hands are the devil's workshop or playground, or I've heard it a couple different ways before. And that can be used in a wrong way, but there is truth behind that statement. Uh, that being idle can lead to all sorts of problems. And the very reason why idleness can lead to all sorts of problems with us is, and this is what I want us to understand, God has not created human beings to be idle. God has not created us just to sit and do nothing. Uh, God has created us, in fact, to work. Now, in no way whatsoever am I going to go on some tirade against retirement and other things, but I am talking about uh, laziness. I am talking about literally doing nothing. I know a lot of people who retire, and when they retire, end up doing a whole lot more than they did when they were working, but I'm talking about the stuff about sitting around, doing nothing, uh, going nowhere, perhaps in our day, watching TV, just being on our phones, just having our wheels turn, you know, going nowhere real quick, and it's a huge problem uh, in our world today. Now, just think about this. Could God himself, the sovereign Lord of the universe, fill our fridges every night with food if he wanted to? Okay, yes. Could God fill our pantries with food? Could Kay not have to go out into and Uh, Kurt McSwain back here and our farmers not have to go out into nearly 100 degree weather to harvest the corn and and plant and do all these things, but God causes the crops to grow and be harvested on their own and everything. Of course, God could do all these things on his own if he wanted to. This isn't something difficult for the Lord, so the big question is, why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God just do everything for us? It's not as if it's difficult for him. And the reason is because God did not create us just to sit around and have that done for us. He created us to actually be active, to be busy at work in some sphere, in some place that he's placed us to be. As I look around tonight and see grandparents and parents and farmers and pastors and lawyers and doctors and teachers, and I don't know what Lee does, but he drives around a lot, (laughs) but people who are in construction and and uh, any, any form of lawful employment is somewhere where you can glorify God, as Pastor Matt was already saying. And again, please don't get the wrong idea. There is a particular calling 
for a pastor and so forth, but don't think you have the pastor and sort of the missionary and then all these other sort of things. They don't really matter that much. These are the ones that matter. No, you are to glorify God in whatever he has called you to do, whether that's behind a pulpit or if that's in a grocery store or if that's at a farm or at a schoolhouse or in the home or wherever that is. Uh, you are to glorify God wherever he has placed you. So again, God has not created us to be passive. God has not created us to be idle, I should say. Um, Terry Johnson, you may know, down at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, when he talks about being active and speaking about this passage, he, he asks about the, the quiet life, the life of contemplation. And, and of course, we are to be people who think and, and think deeply, but he said this, or he is asking sort of a rhetorical uh, question, and he says, aren't we to live lives of, of contemplation? You know, you're talking about all this activity, and he answers by saying, yes, we're to live lives of contemplation while we're working. Uh, that doesn't, we're not supposed to be monks. This is not uh, the, the picture of somebody being out in the wild somewhere by themselves or out in the desert and just sitting on a rock and thinking. Uh, that's not the Christian picture. Uh, the Puritans had it right in the idea of a sort of monastic life that was lived in a city, a life that's devoted to God, but amongst the people of God, not out by yourself. You are to be busy, and you are to be busy about the things of the Lord and whatever you do. So again, the problem here was that people were being idle. Now, let me make sure that I stress this also in verse 11. I'm sorry, in verse 15. No, it is verse 11. I'm sorry. When Paul says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, and then he commands them, uh, and then I just missed when Paul told them uh, to, I'm sorry, in verse 10, when he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Let me stress uh, that word right there, willing. <clears throat> uh, this is not the issue of somebody who's been laid off or cannot find work through no fault of their own. Uh, that is not what Paul is talking about. Somebody who's looking for a job, willing to do whatever. People in that situation, we should help as much as we possibly can. Uh, somebody is willing to go and do menial labor, something that ordinarily they have to, uh, might be seen as beneath them to go and, and do yard work or do uh, manual labor or something, but they realize they have a family to support, they've got mouths to feed, uh, and they're willing to do whatever God has providentially put in their path for the time being in order to support themselves. Uh, we as a church, and I would even say as a society, are to support people who want to do things like that. They are willing to, they want to get out there and do that. Uh, that is most certainly not what Paul is speaking about. Uh, what Paul is speaking about in verse 11 is the people who are unwilling to work. They will not go. They're offered jobs, but they say, nope, not going to do it. They refuse to work. They're, they're grifters, uh, people who are lazy, who've realized that they've been able to do whatever they want without working for it, and they've been enabled to do that. And that's what Paul says, that particular action needs to be cut off right now. And we're going to see, though, that even Paul in saying that is because of a loving reason that he tells them to stop doing this. It's not just to hurt the person or whatever. It's for a loving reason. And that leads to the antidote. Uh, what 
the Thessalonians what the church is to do about this problem of idleness. We see three things uh, that Paul lets them do, tells them to do. He gets, Paul doesn't just give problems and then say, and then just figure out, he'll tell them what to do. He'll give specific steps. This is how you are to deal with this particular issue. You want to be obedient? Okay, here. Verse 6, the first one, he says to mark them out. So notice these people. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. See these people who are walking contrary. Now again, this isn't a one-time thing. These would be people who had been repeatedly uh, talked to, who had been counseled, who had been talked to by the church, and who are refusing to behave. And Paul says to stay away from them. And again, that, that sounds controversial today, to stay away from somebody. Uh, if you want to get really controversial, uh, look all the way down at verse 14, at what he talks about for people who don't listen to the church. It says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that, this is the reason, he may be ashamed Again, we live in our culture today where there's no shame in anything. Uh, you go and you shout your abortion, and you go and you, you have pride, uh, which again is something which should never mark a Christian, which should never mark a sinful person standing before the Lord. Uh, but here Paul says to stay away from people who are acting in sin that they might be ashamed. Again, why? So that they just will feel bad? Of course, the, the goal is that, that shame might open their eyes like the prodigal, and they might realize what they're doing and come back to the church. Church discipline is restorative in nature. It's not punitive just to punish somebody with your own children or grandchildren. You want them to change. That's why you do these things. And I need to go uh, to Hebrews very quickly, but just uh, having gone through Hebrews... Hebrews is such a great book, but gone through Hebrews for quite a while with the youth on Sunday mornings, uh, but wanting to talk to them as, uh, you know, they're still young, but as they get older and again, as our world looks at any form of discipline, even if that comes from parents and so forth, as something that's unloving, as I have family and extended family and in-laws and so forth who uh, teach in public schools and other areas where uh, Really, any form of discipline and upholding of rules and standards can cost you your job. Um, this is, again, not God's way. This is what the Lord says about what he does with his own children. And this is taken from Proverbs, but the author to Hebrews, quoting Proverbs, talking about uh, God basically taking his children uh, to the woodshed, that God will do that. He will deal with you. If you are one of his children, he will not let you go and continue in sin or continue in disobedience. And in chapter 12, uh, he talks about them struggling with sin and so forth. And he says to people who are struggling, he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes from Proverbs. He says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, no, be weary, nor be weary, when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
And then he continues, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. You might think, God has disciplined me. He must hate me. That's our, our first thought. Uh, when we go into some form of discipline or something else, God hates me because things are not going well. Actually, quite often, if we're wet to just go off into our merry self and on our merry way and destroy ourselves, that's the sign of not belonging to God. And he continues on there, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? The Bible assumes that if you love your children, a loving father will discipline them, will care about them enough to deal with them. And he says in verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that's God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And look at the realness here, talking about discipline. And this can even be, you know, come in many forms from the Lord. But listen, he realizes that discipline is not fun in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's the same way in the church. If somebody is a real member of the church, a brother in the Lord, we are, again, I keep giving a thousand qualifications here that people abuse this and everything else, and that is horrible when it is. But seeing somebody walking around in sin or in some way of life that is destructive to them and saying nothing about it ever is not love. It's actually cowardice. And we need to love and lovingly address people that are in these things. So we must mark them out. It must come to our mind and not be something that, uh, you know, that we just turn the other, that, not turn the other cheek, but turn a blind eye to. Secondly, we need to learn how to imitate what is good. If you look at verses 7 and 8, uh, this is a big thing in this letter as well. And again, because of the culture, work was not seen as something that the important people did. And Paul wanted to know, no, it very much is. And verses 7 and 8, Paul wants him to know as an apostle, Paul didn't have to work. He's seen the Lord, the risen Lord, God. He's been to heaven. But Paul was up at night, late at night, making tents and doing things like that so that he doesn't have to take money, and, but more than anything, so that he can be an example to the Thessalonians of how they are to live. They're to be hard at work. He says, For you yourselves know, starting verse 7, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And then verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but this is the reason, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. An example to imitate so that we are to work hard. Again, I see Matt back there holding the baby right now. Um, taking care of children is extremely important. Uh, teaching kindergarten is extremely important. Uh, those who are retired, loving their family, helping the church, everything is extremely important. We need all those things. Um, and again, this is not something saying you've got to be out in the field your whole life and everything else, but whatever station of life God has placed you, that you providentially are in, you are, at the very least, to be seeking to glorify God there. And lastly, the third thing that we are to do is not to enable those who are in sin. And we see this in verse 10. 
verse 10. And Paul is probably quoting a saying that he's, that is calm. I don't, this is probably not original to Paul. It could be, but Paul is fond of hearing kind of maxims and sayings that are popular in certain areas and, and finding truth in, in certain ones. You know, like all Cretans are liars and so forth. We'll say, this saying is true, actually. Uh, he's probably doing the same thing here, but it doesn't really matter if, if it's original to Paul or not. But he says this uh, again in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And the point there is that people are helping them to continue in this lifestyle of idleness by giving them food, by giving them money so they can eat. And what it's doing is not being loving, it's allowing them to continue to live this self-destructive lifestyle where they're not doing what God would have them to do. But, again, somebody perhaps in the name of love or something like that is helping them out so they continue uh, to do this. You know, you see this all the time. Uh, thankfully, we don't see it too much in Dillon, but if you go to Charlotte, and back when my wife and I lived in Phoenix, it's pretty much everywhere when you go to any uh, intersection, there are going to be people all over the place with signs, and I do need to bring this up, but uh, saying, you know, hungry, whatever. Uh, somebody's going to come to you at the gas station and ask for money and other stuff. Um, we have means in our, in our town and other areas, and, if, and again, if somebody is asking literally just for food. Uh, you know, we have a food pantry here at the church, but at the very least, I want to let you know, please in no way whatsoever feel burdened to give somebody money uh, that is asking you for money. Um, there are ways for people to go to shelters. There are ways for people to get food. There are police who can be contacted for people who really are in uh, dire straits. Now, if there is some way where we can really discern that somebody really is uh, in, in a situation where they do need help with something, well, then, yes, we should help them. Uh, of course, the unfortunate, sad thing is that there are way too many people uh, who are grifting, who are uh, simply wanting an easy handout. And when we give them money, just a lot of times, because it's a lot easier to give five, ten bucks and say, see you later, then to talk to the person, it's easier to do that. Um, we're not doing them any favors when they go and then go back to the liquor store or wherever else. And if that sounds harsh or whatever, uh, I doubt there are people who've lived more than a little bit that realize I'm not being harsh there, I'm being realistic. Um, we want to help people, and there are ways of doing it with people uh, that want help, that really want to get a job, that really want to get back on their feet. But people who just want to hand out it's not loving to let them to continue to destroy themselves uh, by enabling them financially to do that. And I realize it can be hard, and I'm not trying to pretend like I'm always the best at uh, telling people I want to help them out and share the gospel and so forth, but I'm not going to give you money. Um, so anyway, um, historically, even looking at that, in uh, Geneva, when John Calvin was preaching, uh, grifting, or begging, I should say, was outlawed. And it's not because they didn't care about people who needed things. They would give them a job. They'd have them go clean up areas and do manual labor, and then they could get food and other things. But they said, you are not, and this is based on the Bible, we are not just going to feed you and let you and do nothing for it. Uh, there's not a free ride here because that's not God's way. Again, this doesn't mean that you're not being gracious. It means that you're not enabling people to destroy themselves. 
So again, the antidote to this problem is to stop the behavior. Now, you know, this is called tough love a lot of times, but we need to remember it is love. It is loving to do that. It's not the loving thing to enable somebody to go and destroy themselves, even though our world will tell you today that's the loving thing to do. No, it's not. So what does this say to all of us uh, tonight here at First Presbyterian Church? Well, work, just remember, it's not something bad. Work is not part of the fall. Um, I'm guessing, and it is a guess, but I think it's an educated guess, that we'll have some sort of work or activity, even in glory. Um, And uh, again, as Pastor Matt even alluded to, I believe this morning it was, but um, the frustration with work is part of the fall. But work itself, when you have a job that you love, something that you like to do, and things are going well and so forth, you know, pre-fall, before the curse, before Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden, God didn't just tell them, go in there and sit there and do nothing. Uh, He tells them to tend the garden. Now, it's productive and so forth, and thinks it wouldn't be all the frustrations we have now, but that is the way that glory is pictured in the Bible, that we will even have potentially jobs then. We'll have things, I will say this, we won't be idle uh, in glory. So again, work is not part of the fall. It is something that we should find satisfaction. We should find uh, that we're working for the Lord when we do so. And again, because we will never be able to find satisfaction in being idle. And that's one of the problems with our kids and so much of our society today is that they don't do anything. And people want to not do anything and be lazy. And it's easy to give into your flesh. It's easy to give into your laziness. And one of the saddest things that I've heard, and I've talked with Pastor Matt and some others about, but I've heard celebrities recently uh, longing for the days of COVID and the lockdowns. And these are the wealthy celebrities, but they're longing, and they'll be talking on podcasts and stuff, saying, remember, man, I actually miss COVID days because we got to stay home and they have money, of course, and pools, and watch movies, and go on TV, and um, you know, food delivered to them, and you know, for a lot of people, money coming to their bank account, whatever, and just do nothing, and saying, I long for those days. Um, that is subhuman. Uh, the, the suicide rates also went through the roof during that time, because we weren't created to sit here and do nothing. We are given a purpose, and that purpose isn't found in doing nothing. So labor is not something to uh, be upset about. God has created us to work. And then again, just as Paul ends this section here, um, we are to be busy in doing good. Uh, But in verses 13 and 14, if we do know somebody who does not listen Uh, Somebody in the church community, if you look at verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Verse 15 is the big thing, though, here. Do not regard him as an enemy. We're not saying, I hate you, you know, you're cursed, everything else. It says, but warn him as a brother. You do this because we are our brother's keeper. We do this because we want them to be healed. We want them to turn realizing we could be the same way. So we're not coming with judgment, I'm so much better than you, but we're coming so that they might be rescued from what they're in right now, that they might turn from it and live. So by God's grace, would we 
be hard at work, we would be, be active people, and by God's grace, we would be loving enough that when a brother or sister is really caught in some sort of sin, that we lovingly would be willing to come alongside of them, help them to turn from that, to warn them, yes, but to love them as their fellow sinners and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that your word says that uh, if our brother sins against us, that we are to go and, and speak with them about the matter, Lord, and that if they won't listen to us, we're not just to drop it, we're to go and take another witness with us, Lord, and, and finally uh, speak to the church and then teach or treat them as an unbeliever ultimately, Lord, ultimately seeking to win them back. Uh, Father, I pray that you'd keep this church from self-righteousness, that there wouldn't be this fault-finding attitude uh, any sense of anything like that, Lord, that you'd forgive us when any of us are like that. Uh, but Lord, at the same time, we are to love enough that we're willing to not ignore the elephant in the room, that we're willing to go and speak to that, that we won't be the cowardly ones, Lord, who turn away from something that needs to be addressed, even though we know this will probably make things painful and ugly and messy. Uh, that is what we're to do in the church. That's what we're to do in our families. Would you help us to do it with grace, Lord, as you do with us, as you discipline us? Uh, Father, would you help us all to remember that, as Pastor Matt mentioned already again, we are saved by your grace alone. We are brought into your family through Christ. We are given his righteousness. But Lord, in the family, we are to spur one another on to work and good deeds, to love and good deeds, Lord. Um, we thank you that you love us and you will never leave us and you will perfect and complete the good work which you have begun in us. Would you continue to do so? We ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.